0: Amen. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? How are you? Good. Good to see you. I'm glad to be here. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church. We're going to be jumping into the scriptures, scriptures in just a moment. So if you want to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 13, Luke 13, that's where we'll be in just a few moments. Before we dive in, just two quick things I want to kind of add when it comes to our announcements for uh, the morning. The first thing is um, we as a church just had the privilege this year of supporting Foster the Family in their Winter Wonderland event. That was yesterday. Um, uh, Kim McCullough, my wife, uh, is the director uh, of Foster the Family, and they had about 300 kids in foster care uh, at this event yesterday, just able to serve them and care for them. And one of the big things that we did during that event is we had this, we kind of set up this amazing North Pole type of thing, and kids got to ride a train over to it, and then they were led into this room just full of toys, hundreds and hundreds of toys, and they could just go pick whatever they want. And I went in this room, and these were like legit toys. All right, I was a little jealous myself, trying to like tell my- my son what to get. Like, oh, Leland, did you see that basketball over there? You should get that. Uh, But anyway, I just wanted to thank you because one of the things that we committed to as a church to provide a hundred toys for that event in partnership with a few other organizations to kind of get all of the toys that we needed to make this a success. And Kim was telling me she thinks that we doubled our commitment and gave probably over 200 toys. So I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous and being a part of that and providing those. It was an amazing event for these kids. I know some of you were there serving as well. So just wanted to thank you uh, for that. The second thing I wanted to bring up is our Roots Initiative. I talked about this last week, sent an email out also this week about our Roots Initiative. Uh, As you know, every year people are always thinking about giving an additional gift uh, at the end of the year, kind of maximize their tax deduction for the year. And we are praying that you would give to our Roots Initiative. And this is all about us acquiring a facility in 2024 uh, to be able to. To worship in and use for ministry. Throughout the week, We started the Roots Initiative a year ago, and we were able to put $150,000 into that fund, and that has allowed us to start pursuing uh, some potential properties and getting some things rolling. We've shared a little bit about that with you. Uh, this year, our goal is to put another $150,000 into that account through year-end giving. And so what we did is we put in your bulletin another card. You had a very full bulletin this morning. Uh, we put another Card And this is just an end-of-year prayer guide. This is what we're asking you to pray about when it comes to your year-end giving. We don't want you to give anything that the Lord doesn't instruct you to give. So we want you to enter into a season of prayer asking the Lord. And we just ask you to follow God's will for this. Uh, but this is kind of giving you details of what our goal is for the year. We want to double our Roots Initiative Fund and get it to $300,000, which means we'd like to put in another one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, here's the really exciting thing that's happened in the last week since last Sunday, is we've had a donor kind of step to the plate and offer a two-for-one match up to fifty thousand dollars. Okay, so what that means is for every two dollars put in to the Roots Fund uh, over this season, uh, they're going to put in one dollar up to fifty thousand dollars, which means that if we put in a hundred together as a congregation, they're going to put in a whole 50 and we will hit our goal. So that basically puts us a third of the way there, which is just so cool. So grateful to see the Lord's provision um, for this church. And so that's so encouraging to me. So I pray that you would take that and you would continue to pray about contributing to the Roots Fund uh, at the, uh, for your year-end giving. To do that, you can just go to our website, click the Give button um, there. You can uh, give online. There is fund designations in there. So most of your giving goes to our general fund. But if you click that, you'll also see Roots Fund, and you can select that. That means that money gets designated to that specific purpose. Uh, you can write a check, put Roots into the memo line. That lets us know to designate it there as well. You can also give via stock, and so there's information on that on our website. The only other thing I would ask you is uh, please continue to give to our general fund as you normally do. Uh, we do need our general fund to stay strong so we can operate as a church. So anything over and above you might give for the end of the year, we ask that you would pray about giving that to the Roots Initiative. All right, that's enough of that. Let's jump in to God's Word, Luke chapter. Thirteen, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I on Black Friday I took my son Leland to go see uh, a football game at my old high school. So I went to Stonebridge High School out in Ashburn, and I played football there uh, many, many years ago as captain of the team my senior year, and it was a massive part of my life. Like football was everything to me. When I was a teenager, the crazy thing is I haven't been to a game in over ten years, and so uh, I saw that they were playing in a regional championship game. And so I was like, Leland, we should go and watch uh, my old team play. So we went to go, and it was funny because one of my best friends from high school happened to be at the game too. So we got to sit together, watch the game together, kind of reminisce, and my same coach. Uh, who was coaching me 20 years ago, was still on the sideline coaching this team and winning championships. Uh, he's a great coach. But here's the thing about this guy, this coach. I've talked about him before. He was a big, imposing figure in my life. This I was petrified of this guy. Okay. Number one, he was just every stereotype of a football coach you could think of. He embodies. He was a large man. He had a deep voice. He was intense. He was mean. He was terrifying, but he was a really great football coach and he won a lot of games and still is winning A lot of games. But it was interesting because I'm sitting there and I'm watching him on the sideline. And since I hadn't been in about a decade to a game, I'm watching him and it's just kind of bringing back all of these memories of being coached by him. And I made a comment to my buddy who was sitting with me. I said, man, wouldn't it be cool to be able to go out to dinner with him and just talk about the last 20 years and uh, reminisce about when we played together. And my buddy says to me, he goes, Alan, he, he wouldn't remember you. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? I was one of the captains. Like, of course you remember. He's like, no, 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 seriously. Like, he wouldn't. Uh, I, I saw him. He goes, I saw him at a restaurant about a year ago. And I went up to him. And I was like, oh, hey, coach. And he's like, don't remember who you are, right? And I started to think about it for a second. I'm like, okay, it's been over 20 years. And so okay, he's probably coached a few thousand players between now and when he coached me, I could understand why if I went up and talked to him, he might be like, yeah, sorry, I'm having a hard time remembering who you were. And it's interesting to think about that, that there would be someone in your life that's so influential, so big, you are so knowledgeable of who they are and what they're like and what their personality is, but in return, they don't know you, right? You're just a number. You're just someone who at one point they were acquainted with, but they've kind of moved on. It's interesting to think about that. And I wonder if for many of us, that's our impression of Jesus. Like Jesus, this big, imposing, influential figure. Someone that we study, someone that we think about, someone that we talk to. We come to church every single Sunday and we talk about following Jesus. And so we're so acquainted with this person, Jesus. But I wonder if we think that we don't embody the same kind of impact to him that he does to us. Would he know us? I mean, okay, so I can give my coach grace that he wouldn't remember me. He's coached thousands of kids since he coached me. But with Jesus, we're just we're like one in a billions that he's created. Would Jesus know us? If Jesus were to walk in the room right now, what would he be like? If you were to encounter Jesus right now in the flesh, and you could see his facial expressions, would he know you? Would you expect him to? What would that be like for you? We're in an Advent series right now. Every year we take four Sundays before Christmas to do Advent, and Advent is just this season of Thinking about the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that Jesus came here in the flesh. He became one of us. And so one of the questions we're asking in this series right now is, what is Jesus like? If we were to encounter Jesus incarnate, Jesus in the flesh, what would he be like? And so this morning we're going to go to Luke chapter 13 to continue to answer that question if Jesus were to walk in the room right now what would it be like if you want to go with me to Luke 13 there is a synagogue that had this happen I'm going to read, and we're just going to kind of read a verse or two at a time and stop and think about it and kind of work our way through the text, but I'm going to read verses 10 to 17. It says, Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So we have this woman in the congregation of this synagogue. And we don't really know what the text means, that she had a disabling spirit. Some think that she had a demon with her. Some think it was just a physical ailment. But whatever it was, it also caused her to be bent over. She couldn't fully straighten herself. And for 18 years, she was struggling with this. This woman in this synagogue was unseen, unwanted, and insignificant, as we'll see in the text in just a few moments. I just want us to stop and ask, what would it be like to be this woman? Like to be the one person in the congregation who would think, yes, if God incarnate walked into the room, I would be the last person he would be interested in. I would be the last person that he would see. There's far more important people in the room. Verse 12. It says, when Jesus saw her, Jesus didn't see an annoyance. Jesus didn't see someone who was unfaithful. Jesus didn't see a problem he now had to navigate. He saw someone who was precious and someone who was suffering. Now, again, I, I just want to read slowly through this text this morning, because sometimes we read this stuff too fast. If Jesus were to walk in the room right now, would he notice you? Or do you think I'm the one person in the room that he wouldn't? There's far more people in this room that'd be worth his time than me. I don't know what you walked in here this morning with. I don't know all of your stories. I don't know what all has been going through your mind or your heart. But all of us have got something in us that would say, yep, I'm the one that he wouldn't notice. When Jesus saw her, verse 12, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, or you could just put in there the pastor, the pastor, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So there are two things we know about this woman, right? She's been struggling for 18 years with something. And we also know that this is her synagogue, this is where she came and she attended and she read the word of, she heard the word of God read aloud. This was her faith community. I think it's safe to say that. And what's interesting is your impression of who God is, your impression of God's character is primarily influenced by your faith community. I want you to think about this. The people that you rub shoulders with on a regular basis in order to practice your faith Those people have the most influence on your impression of God and his character. And my question is, by attending this synagogue and based off this ruler's response to what just happened in the room, what do you think was her impression of God prior to this moment? If God showed up in the room in the flesh, what did she assume God would be like? Do you think she assumed that she would be seen by God Himself? Do you think she would assume that she mattered? Because to this faith community, she didn't matter to this ruler, the religious leader in the room that everyone's looking to to take cues from, she didn't matter. And the Lord Jesus in this moment, I think I'm adding this anecdote is furious. There's a few reasons why I add that anecdote. The first is, if you go to the text and go to verse 15, up to this point, Luke had referred to Jesus in this story as Jesus, his name, or just with the pronoun he or him, but in verse 15, Luke changes how he refers to Jesus. Verse 15, then the Lord answered him, the king It's almost a sign to us that Jesus all of a sudden found it that it is necessary now to take over. I need to relieve this ruler of the synagogue, of him, of his leadership and his authority. Not formally in the synagogue, but for right now in the room, I'm taking over. I don't think Jesus was happy because this was a faith community that was called to represent who God is to their people and to their neighbors. And that's not what was happening. So Jesus says, it's time to take authority. Verse 15. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on this Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus, in this moment, immediately he quotes, actually, or he refers to more the Mishnah. This was The Mishnah was kind of a, uh, a commentary on the law for the Jewish people. And so what they had written in the Mishnah was that on the Sabbath, yes, there's regulations. We're not allowed to work. We need to rest. We need to rely on the Lord. But yes, if your donkey needs some water, you can give it some water. It was a little clarification little commentary on the Sabbath law found in the Mishnah. And Jesus is just saying, hey, you wrote this. And why can't someone be healed on the Sabbath day? This is the question that Jesus is asking. If you go to the few verses before this in Luke 13, if you go to verses six to nine, right before this in Luke 13, Jesus tells a parable And it's really odd parable. Let's read it real quick. I'm just going to read verse 6 to 9. Or, uh, no, I'm going to read verse 6 and 7. It says, And Jesus told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So parable is just a fictional story designed to make a point, right? So a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use the ground? And right after this parable, this incident is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. They are absolutely connected. This parable told by Jesus is designed then to give us a commentary on what's about to happen in the synagogue. Jesus walks into a synagogue that is designed to represent who he is. And he finds no fruit. He walks into the synagogue. This should be the place that is displaying the kingdom of God to the world, and he finds the exact opposite. And the warning in the parable is this, cut it down, they're not bearing any fruit. That parable was a metaphor for how the religious system of that day was not bearing fruit. And so what we see in this incident with the synagogue Is who Jesus really is, what the incarnation is really like, what would actually happen if Jesus walked into the room in the flesh. And so what I want you to know this morning is that in the same way that Jesus saw this woman, I want you to hear this morning, he sees you. He sees you you matter not because your righteousness to sin ratio is really good for the week not because you are a servant or a leader in this church and you teach the bible or you have a lot of knowledge of scripture it's it's not because of that Not because you've been coming to church a lot. Maybe this is your first time back at church in a long time. No, that has nothing to do with it. I just want you to know he sees you. Why? Because you matter to him. And he came for you. That's the entire point of Advent in Christmas is that he came for you. And if he were to walk into this room right now, he would see you because he's your Lord. He would notice you. And all of the anxiety you would feel for being in the presence of Jesus himself would melt away, I believe, the minute you saw his eyes. Uh, in his book, How to Really Know a Person by David Brooks, the NYT columnist, great book, by the way, you should read it. Um, He says, when you offer a gaze that communicates respect, you are positively answering the questions people are unconsciously asking themselves when they meet you. Am I a person to you? Am I a priority to you? Those questions are answered by your eyes before they're answered by your words. And I just firmly believe that if Jesus were to walk in the room right now and he were to make eye contact with you, you would know immediately that this is a safe person. This is someone who loves me. This is someone who sees me. Last week we talked about how in the New Testament, oftentimes the New Testament refers to the church so us, as an expression of the church, as the body of Christ. It's just prolific all throughout the New Testament. The church is the body of Christ. And so, and one of the things we talked about last week is that that's not a mere metaphor or just interesting analogy to help us understand the body. No, I, I think there's some reality to that. We are his body. Jesus is the head. We are his body. Colossians 1.18, right? Right? And as his body, the calling upon us is to represent him and do his works in the world. As the head dictates, the, the body follows. We continue the incarnation of Christ while we wait for his second return. And if that is true, then what I want to know is what does it mean then for the church to show up in the world as Jesus did? What would it look like for the church to show up like in that synagogue as Jesus showed up in that synagogue? So I'm asking these questions. I'm studying this week and the questions that I'm asking myself is this. How does Grace Hill Church do at representing the incarnation of Jesus? Because if we are the body of Christ, if we are the eyes of Christ, do we see people like Jesus sees people? That's the question I want to ask. Do we see people like Jesus sees people? When we're gathered together on a a Sunday morning or in our groups or other events, when we're gathered together here, do people encounter Jesus? And I'm not talking about what's going on on the stage, I'm not talking about what's being preached, what's being sung, what's going up here. Yes, we want to represent Jesus on this stage. But I'm talking as people encounter us, when they hit the lobby, do they encounter Jesus? What impression of God do we give people? Well, there's two things from our text this morning that I want to help us to see. Help us to learn from Jesus on how to see people. Here's the first one. The first thing I want us to see from the text is that Jesus sees not just a person, but their whole story. If you look at verse 11, we're we're told that this woman had been bound by Satan, disabling spirit, bent over, struggling for 18 years. We got all of this context in history for this woman. She's a daughter of Abraham. And when Jesus sees her, he sees all of that. Now, Jesus has a distinct advantage to us, all right? I mean, he's all knowing. He can look right at a person and he knows their full story, all right? He doesn't really need to ask many questions in order to understand that. So he's got an advantage all right, to us. We can't do that. If people walk into this room, we can't look at them once and know their entire life story. So there is a practice that we have to get used to doing in order to see people like Jesus. You know what that is? Curiosity. We don't know people. We are not Jesus. We are not all-knowing. So we have to be curious before we think anything about another person. Asking good, loving questions before you make assumptions. Like what if we did that for each other? If we want to see each other like Jesus sees us, we want to see our neighbors like Jesus sees them, we have to be curious. You cannot see people like Jesus and not be curious because you are not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. So what would that look like? What would it look like the minute you see another person and you start to make some assumptions in your head and your heart, maybe some judgments or thoughts, you go, oh, hold on, I need to get to know this person first. I need to ask some good, friendly questions. What would it look like when you saw the Facebook post that just made you so mad and angry and you felt so righteous? You go, oh, hold on, I'm not Jesus, I don't know the story. And you call your friend up and you say, Hey, how are you? What's going on? Or the person that didn't text you back and you're wondering what's going on or maybe they felt a little standoffish at church that morning or whatever it is. We just, oh, hold on. I have a lot going on here. I have a lot of fears hitting me right now. I have a lot of assumptions hitting me. I have a lot of judgments hitting me. Let's have some self-awareness. Take a step back. I need to be curious because I'm not Jesus And I want to see this person as Jesus sees them, right? The impulse of curiosity forces you to see people rather than make assumptions about people. And I just want to say this. I mean, I'm going to press a little bit here. I know there are people in this room who have lost relationships because you are not curious, People in this room who are hurting and grieving over lost relationships. Because you made an assumption, didn't take a step back, and say, I need to be curious. I need to ask a few more questions. Because everyone has a huge, complex, massive story behind who they are and what's going on with them. I'm just curious, like how many people made assumptions about this woman who's bent over and been struggling for 18 years? What kind of assumptions were being made at this woman that there was anger in the room when she was freed and not praise? That's mind-blowing to me. I think it's interesting. I think this is why Jesus points out the hypocrisy of the people in verse 15. Like these people right here Have more grace, more slack in the rope, more understanding, more willing to look at all the variables of the equation and give the benefit of the doubt for themselves than they do other people. I mean, this is why I think Jesus goes to the Mishnah here. He, he, they made a clarification in the Mishnah. Hold on. We've got these Sabbath regulations. We want to keep those. Our heart is to be obedient to God, right? Our heart is to keep the Sabbath. Our heart is to worship God in that way, but we need to, we need to water the donkey. So we're going to put a clarification in there, right? So we can water the donkey, but our hearts remain the same. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't criticize this. Jesus isn't like, you're not allowed to water your donkey. He understands the nuance. He understands the variables to the equation. Okay, I get it. You're you're trying to follow the Sabbath. But what he points out is you're not willing to have that same kind of nuance. You're not willing to give the same kind of slack in the rope. You're not willing to step back and have the same understanding for other people that you give yourself. Which is why I think the second greatest commandment is you need to love your neighbor as yourself. What would it look like if we were just as patient and gracious and understanding with others as we are with ourselves? What would it look like if when we see someone else doing something and we have some judgments on it, that we go, I want to understand all the variables to that first before I make an assumption or a judgment? Because that's what I would do for myself. When Jesus looks at you, he sees your entire story. He gets that all of it is wrapped up into what's going on in the room right now. Curiosity is the way that we follow Jesus. And we see one another as he sees us. We see our neighbors as he sees them. That's the first thing I think we learn from Jesus here. The second thing, number two. It's Jesus sees people when everyone else doesn't. I'm struck of the 18 years. It's a long time. Clearly, Jesus is speaking to the entire congregation in verse 15. It says, And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, plural, Verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries, plural, were put to shame. I think he was talking to everyone here. Jesus sees when everyone else doesn't see. This story seems a little unbelievable to me. Like, honestly, I really believe that if a woman were in this congregation and she was struggling with something like this for so long and she was healed while we were all there and we all witnessed it, I am confident we would not respond in anger. But we would rejoice. But I don't want to be overly prideful. Like, there were cultural norms feeding this response by the congregation. This was a woman who probably would have been seen as unclean, unsafe, someone that you did need to keep a distance from in order to remain faithful to God. And Jesus turns that upside down. So it makes me curious, and I want to ask... What kind of person could walk through those doors right now, today, and we would collectively not see them? Because they don't fit what we're used to, they don't fit what we're comfortable with, we don't know what to do with it. Maybe we have an upbringing, or we have some beliefs, or whatever it is that tells us, distance yourself. If you get close to them, if you see them, it might mean that you're unfaithful. Who do we not see that Jesus sees? I mean, honestly, I've been praying about this this week. Like, Lord, what would it be for us? Because I don't want to be blind to that. And I realize I'm blind to what I'm blind to. And just asking the Spirit, hey, would you reveal that? Like, is it, is it mental health? You know, is it, is it people in this room right now struggling with depression? And they don't know how to talk about it. They don't feel safe talking about it. They're afraid of being judged. We kind of have a culture in America right now where, you know, everyone just kind of keeps themselves and you're individuals and, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to go and be curious and ask questions that might be a little deep or probing and so we just avoid that. Maybe, is that would that person be unseen here? I, I, you know, we're a church that adheres to a biblical sexual ethic. We believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe sex should be reserved for the marriage covenant. We believe it's what the Bible teaches us. Would the person struggling with that be seen here? Would a child or a youth struggling that be seen here? I heard a pastor say the other day that when a child or a teenager comes out of the closet with their parents, their parents go into the closet when it comes to the church because they don't know if in the church is this a place where we can be seen something that was so black and white to me all of a sudden got really nuanced because I have a loved one in the middle of all of that and it makes me struggle and I don't know what to do with it can I share, can I struggle am I just going to be met with black and white Commands. Well, is it safe? Can I be seen? Would that person be seen here? I don't know. And it haunts me as a pastor here. Who is the person who's unseen? And if Jesus would walk in the room, he would see them to our shame. I just want to invite you, like, let's pray together as a congregation on that. We're not above this synagogue. This could happen here. If we want to see people like Jesus, it requires humility and giving others the same kind of understanding that we grant ourselves. I need to close. Last thing I want to say Band, if you want to come up, you can. Last thing I want to say is this. Sometimes we're not seen because we don't allow others to see us. Sometimes we're not seen because we don't allow others to see us. This week I was sitting with my counselor, And uh, I was talking to him about something. I kind of confessed something to him that I was a little, uh, about something that I was feeling anxious about. And um, I was a little embarrassed. And I said that to him. And we talked about it for a bit. And and when we were kind of done talking about it, he goes, hey, I'm just curious, like, how do you feel now? Now that we've talked about it, do you still feel embarrassed? Do you still feel anxious? Like, how do you feel? And I was like, man, I, I feel... I, no, I don't, I don't feel embarrassed at all anymore, I, and I appreciate the conversation. And he, he looked at me, and he just said this truth to me. And I'll just pass it to you. You know, every single one of us are descended from Adam. The Adam who hid in the bushes. When he had sinned against God, and God came walking into the garden... He ran and he hid, and he hid in the bushes. And God's going, Adam, where are you? See, Adam hides in the bushes because Adam believed that to be seen means death. To be found out means death. And we're all descended from him. We all have learned patterns of showing up in the world from Adam the long-held belief that percolates all through humanity that to be seen means death. We all have things that we long for others to see in us. Hurts that we want to be able to articulate, frustrations and angers we want to be able to process, uh, joys that we just want to celebrate with people, whatever it is, we all long for people to see us, but we also believe that to be seen means risking death. Rejection, judgment, being alone. And curiosity and giving each other understanding helps create a safe culture. But you still have to come out from the bushes. And Jesus came to expose the lie that to be seen means death. And I just want to say, like, Grace Hill, we're gospel proclaimers here. We are not law enforcers. We want to be people who follow Jesus. And we can look at this scripture in Luke chapter 13, and we can find a way to follow the religious system, or we can follow Jesus. And I promise you to go the way of following Jesus will invite ridicule from the religious system every single time. Church history proves it. We want to follow Jesus. We want to proclaim the gospel. We want to be a place where uncomfortable things can come into the light and they'll be seen and know. It will be a lie that to be seen means death. We want to proclaim the grace of God the cross of Jesus Christ where he went to the cross to die for your sins so that you could be seen, you could be redeemed, and you could be led to new life. And so I encourage you to come out of the bushes. And we're not going to get it perfect here. We have blind spots. All we can be is curious about those blind spots and humble to confess them when they are brought to light. I encourage you to come out from the bushes. If you have anything you need to talk about, be prayed with about, you want to just process with some, whatever it is, come out. And we would love to be a congregation that ministers the gospel of Jesus to you. We want to be a place that follows Jesus in this text. Because I really believe that the church is the body of Christ we are called to continue the incarnation until he returns. Let me pray that he would allow us to do that. God, I just want to come to you and just ask for your grace upon us and that your Holy Spirit would be so kind, God, to reveal in us our blind spots. Lord Jesus, Where Do we not see people that you see? Lord Jesus, if there's someone in the room right now who is that person, it's it's this woman. They've been suffering and they're unseen and we're blind to it. have mercy on us, God. Show us who they are. Show us where our prejudice is. Show us where our pride is. Show us, Lord, where we're wrong because we want to follow you. I pray, God, that this place is a representation of your kingdom and that when people come here and people rub shoulders with us, They get a true picture of who you are, God. Help us. Jesus, we praise you that you came for us. We ask these things in Christ's name.